Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Do you have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Lowe, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 7, Episode 23, A Call for Help. In this week's episode, we heard from Danny Hartley's cousin, Michelle, who shared a lot of information with us. We got a lot of insights into what was going on with Bill right before he was murdered and where the police had another shortcoming in not following up with her. I'm joined today in the studio, as always, with Mike Bussing. Hey, Bob. And Zach Weaver. Hello. And we've got a lot of your questions, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before we get into the questions, let's first start out with a discussion, guys. Can we talk a little bit about Michelle, who we interviewed this week? Let's go over her statement and the evidence she had to offer and what that could mean. Well, I think the first thing that we need to do before we can really determine what her statement is telling us, we need to kind of walk through, I guess, kind of the timeline and see, because keep in mind, you know, this is 28 years later and memories fade and memories shift. So I don't think we can take everything right on face value as though it's absolutely accurate because that's a long time for memory manipulation to set in. So I I guess first let's kind of break down the elements of her statement to see, you know, what what can be verified. And I know, Zach, you had some questions about just the, the overall kind of timeline. Well, I'll say first, you know, when when it came up, I was very excited to hear from her. Mm-hmm. I thought what she had to say was was really interesting. and. And it was refreshing to hear somebody coming out of the woodwork and saying something. But then as I digested a little more, some it just didn't line up quite as well as I think she wanted it to or as she was saying. Yeah. You know, she talked about that he called and she knew it was a certain time because she was listening to the radio, mm-hmm. which I could I could possibly see that, even yeah. though that's, I don't know, being that it's 28 years later, that's still kind of hard to say. Right. But then we talked about, you know, she said that he, they basically called her right back. Right. And I don't know, that just seems, I don't know, it doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem like a responding officer is going to go through this, this person's pockets, find a note, and then immediately call the person. You know, right. That's, that's where I get 
weird about this. Well, and after looking a little closer at it and with some help from Ray and Tammy, I don't think that's what happened. Okay. Um, so I, I think that – now, I had heard, I think, from Danny that the call to her from police happened. So, I mean, it is provable that, that he did have that note with her number in it, right? Yeah, for sure he had the note with the number in it. We know the police eventually got that, and, and at some point they called her. And from what I had heard from – I believe it was Danny way back mm-hmm. uh, before we ever heard from Danny on the podcast that Bill had called his cousin. You know, this isn't like a story that just came out with the podcast mm-hmm. that, you know, M- Michelle has said for years that Bill had called her that night looking for Danny to come back. But I, I think that a, a, cu- a couple of things could have happened. What we know is, uh, and I don't have the documents right in front of me, but the police didn't process that note in his pocket that night. Okay. See, and that's my thought is it doesn't seem like, granted, I'm not a first responder. I'm not a police officer. Mm -hmm. But it seems like, you know, if you get there, you know, Pilo gets there, sees somebody down. Mm -hmm. They call it in saying that there's somebody down. More time for another officer to get there. They finally, they try to do life-saving measures on him. Mm Mm-hmm unsuccessfully they realize he's shot it seems like they'd still have to secure the scene they, there's right. a lot they'd have to do that doesn't seem like it would take a long even if they did call her that night it doesn't seem like it'd be hours it, it, in my head yeah yeah it definitely would not be right away mm-hmm. for sure i mean it couldn't be because like you said i mean there was you know after he's killed there's some time passes the police get there they find her they have rescue come in rescue goes in determines there's nothing they can do the scene secured the crime scene techs come in, they take pictures, you know, be, and you got to wait for them to get there, you know, because they, they take pictures of the crime scene before anything is moved. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't disturb pockets or anything like that at, until they, they, they had already documented everything. So, yeah, you're talking hours before that call could have happened or they could have found it. Uh, and, and then the note in the pocket, I believe, and I'm working off memory here, but it, it was something to the extent of, that was found, I want to say, like at the ME's office or the coroner's office. Okay. Like when they were processing his clothes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was later. It, went, it was like a week or something before it was turned over to police. Now, that doesn't mean that a couple things could happen there. Uh, if, if if Michelle's story is accurate, then it doesn't mean they, they could have, you know, the Pilo or Williams or one of the crime scene techs, Kalal or whoever, could have. You know, pulled it out, seen it, and said, "Well, let's call her mm-hmm. and and talk to her, and then you know, put everything back." And it was it was collected as evidence later. That seems unlikely. The other option is that they they maybe hit redial on the phone. Okay, I thought about that. If it did, if they called it, it seems weird to blend that memory. You know that it happened that night. That it was shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. With with something that happened a week or two later, I mean, it does it, it it on its surface seems weird. If you really understand how memory works, especially traumatic memories, it's not it's not at all out of the question that that's that that could be what happened. So, how do you feel about the seven fifty five? Her saying that it was seven fifty five based on she heard it on the radio. Do we think that? I mean, do you think that that's a contrived memory, or do you think that that's something that actually happened? I mean, I feel like that's hard to come up with. I think that it's it's likely about right. Okay. As far as when she got the call from Bill, mm-hmm. but not for the reason that you've heard me say this many times that anytime somebody's given me a specific time, unless there's a real distinct marker on it, mm-hmm. and you know she does say there's the the radio thing, but you know I don't know she was never interviewed by police, right? So we don't have we don't have a statement from her on that night 
to compare it to, mm-hmm. you know. So this is just something she's remembered over the years, and and this is what happens with memory is you know you Danny has told her you know she knows Bill called her she knows she talked to the police, and she's young, and then over the year you know Danny tells her that he was there and you know they probably talked about him calling and looking for her mm-hmm. or looking for him, and then she as she gets more details, your mind just you know and it, it's nothing. Not, nothing negative towards Michelle at all. It's just the way it works. Your 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 brain starts to fill in gaps and creates a narrative that didn't really exist there. So that so when somebody's telling me they know a time from 28 years ago, I'm like it's it's probably not accurate. So what what I'm listening for when I'm analyzing these statements or what are what are some points that we can kind of sink our teeth into? The the biggest one to me is is that Bill called Michelle. Looking for Danny. Okay. Uh, because that is something that is, you know, Danny has told me. I've heard that before. Michelle has 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 brought it up in the past. Mm-hmm. We know the phone number was in his pocket. So I that happened. So knowing that, I can look at what do we know from the timeline. Well, Danny on that night, I, you know, there, were, there was the different stories changed over the years, which, again, is, is memory issues. But essentially somewhere between 7 to 7.45. He Danny was there, okay, and he left, and he he left not long before all this happened, and we know Bill's dead, or you know he's hitting the silent alarm by eight sixteen, so it's probably if she's talking to him prior to his death, and she says it, it sounds like there was a customer, and we can look at the register, and I think eight oh five is our last uh, charge on the register, okay. So you you it looks like somewhere around eight o'clock, you know, it could have been the eight oh five, could have been it could have been Wiley Holt coming in, it could have been you know anything through in that in that period of time. So I think seven fifty five is not is not out of the realm of possibilities. I think it's probably pretty close to accurate, but not because of the radio thing, just because of the actual information that we have. No, that breakdown helps a lot. That's you know I wouldn't have thought of it that way, but that breakdown helps a lot. I mm-hmm. think. But then there's the the second call, and that's the one that I have the issue with. Yeah. Well, I do too. Yeah. I I mean, it was the, the fact that it, it came, and I know, and again, I, I know in Michelle's mind, it seemed like it happened bang, bang. Mm-hmm. But if the call happened that night, it had to have been hours later. You know, and, and she said that she knows she got off the police and Danny went to her house. Well, we know Danny did go to her house mm-hmm. crying after he had he had found out. But Danny didn't get back to the station until like nine o'clock, so it would have been, you know, that happened nine ten o'clock somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. But it just—I don't think anybody would be that far into the investigation that early. And then again, the biggest issue is that police didn't, from their documents, didn't have access to that phone number until several days later. So it just—it it, it just that I don't think. They called her that night. I think they probably called her on another night, and it just kind of blended together, especially she knows Bill. She likes Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, she actually texted me the next day and was telling me uh, a story about how Bill stuck up for her. You know, they they were always just friends. They, you know, they were never dating or anything, but she had some kids bullying her, and Bill told her to well, tell those kids if they keep bullying you that your boyfriend's going to be at the bus stop tomorrow. And the next day when she got off the bus, their Bill stood and – Hmm. You know, grabbed her hand and acted like her boyfriend and, you know, to help her out. So, you know, so she was close with Bill and she had a, a good relationship. So that that trauma, 
you think about, I mean, we've we've all lost people close to us, and you think about the weeks right after the trauma involved in that, and just how much of a blur everything is yeah. during those times. You know, if you try to remember back to you know the week after you lost a loved one. And so it, it makes sense to me. But the, the only way that I can see that they did call her that night would be if they just hit redial on the phone to see who he called last. Okay. But I think she said when they called, they asked to speak with Michelle. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't seem likely either. But could that be a, another made up? I, I don't want to say made up, but just something that her brain has made connections to if they did hit redial. It's possible. You know, uh-uh. she's the one that answered the phone. But I feel like it would have been a very different conversation. You know what I mean? It would have been, uh, hey, did someone call you here from the Clark station? Do you, you know, as opposed to, you know, the way she remembers the conversation, which is, hey, can I talk to your mom? You know, and they want to know. But it was weird, too, because they didn't. She said they didn't even ask her if he called or what they talked about. Just wanted to know why her number was in his pocket. Okay. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What I want to look at is if the the memory is accurate, which I think all points seem to indicate that it is, that Bill did call her looking for Danny, wanting Danny to come back to the store, that... It tells us a few things, you know, it, it, it obviously something was amiss and we already kind of knew that we already had evidence or indications of that in both Bill or uh, Danny and Dion, his friend Dion that were there that night, both said Bill asked them not to leave, didn't want him to leave. And as Danny has said, he's like, it was, he's never done that before. It was weird that he didn't want him to go. And then after he leaves, he's calling him, trying to get him to, trying to come back. And he's so much so he's calling his cousin to try to you know, find him to get him to come back. And then you have the, he's helping a customer there while this is happening. So I don't know. Let's think about that for a minute. Like what, if that's accurate, what could be making him feel like something's wrong? I mean, it has to be somebody's presence, you know, the way they're around the store, but I can't think of what else would be. That, that, and that to me is an indicator of someone casing the place and acting weird, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so, and, and that's why, you know, I wonder if the cash dumped in, you know, there's a lot of scenarios you could go over, but say that was Wiley Holt that came in while he was talking to her, you know, if, if something about him mm-hmm. was making him nervous, but then again, you think, well, he wouldn't, whoever was in the store probably wasn't the person because you wouldn't, he, you wouldn't think you want to have that conversation with them. It's a tiny little store. Mm-hmm. So maybe the car that was parked outside, if Wiley Holt was telling the truth and there was a car parked outside, 
at the gas pump for long. He's watching somebody just sitting there staring at the store. But something gave him some concerns. But I think it also is an indicator that whoever was giving him those concerns that he was worried isn't someone he knew. Okay. I can see that. All right. So can you elaborate on that a little bit, Bob? Well, yeah. So think about if if I'm somewhere and there's someone hanging around that is making me uncomfortable. And so I call you to say, hey, man, why don't you come in here? Something's making me nervous. I feel like if I knew that person, if it was Zach, I'd be like, hey, you need to come down. Dude, Zach, Zach's hanging around. He's acting weird. Or, you know, this guy, Zach, I, I know him from, you know, I, there would be a specific, there would be a name. There would be, I know this guy, something's happening. You know, so it just it just doesn't seem like if you had a, a known personal relationship with the person that's making you uncomfortable that you wouldn't even mention who it was. Right. And then what else comes to mind for me is if that's an immediate threat or if it's somebody they know that's in the store, I don't see one of their first instincts to be, let me pick up the phone and call for help. I think the the fact that, that he made the call and appeared uneasy has a lot to do with um, the threat not being as big as he thought at the time. So like if my life was in jeopardy or I thought I was going to get killed. Right. I'm not going to pick up the phone and call for call somebody to call somebody else to come and, and sit with me. And call the police or hit the alarm. Or run or fight. You don't pick up the phone and make a phone call. Right. So I think that's a really, really good indicator that he didn't think that his life was in jeopardy, but he was uneasy. The next, the next thing I wanted to ask you. Really, well, before you move on from that, I think that it also could be an indicator that something's making him uneasy, but he can't necessarily put his finger on why. Right. And he can't articulate. So like, like there's a guy hanging out, you know, you're not, and you don't want to call the police and be like, Hey, there's a guy here that's making me nervous. Mm -hmm. You know, especially being a guy with bravado and all that, you know, you don't, you don't want to act like a punk, but it's, it's to me, it's, yeah, it's almost like you just can't he knows something's not right with someone or something that's happening, but he can't put his finger on it because you're right. If somebody, if it was like, I, I want Danny to come back because I saw a guy with a gun. I don't think that's how that plays out. No. No. So it's more like there's a guy that keeps hanging around that's making me uncomfortable. Right. And then also while we're on this again, just to refresh everyone's memory, what time was he supposed to get off work? Oh, that's a good question. That's been thrown around. I want to say 10 o'clock. So he was well into his shift. Yeah. He started at 3 in the afternoon. Okay. I think it was 3 to 11 or 3 to 10 that night. Right. So it makes me think that kind of makes me think, and I don't know if I've connected enough dots to make this sound logical, but I would look at an altercation with a customer or somebody in the store on that day while he was on shift. He knew, and he knew he had to finish his shift. He couldn't leave the store. So whoever he got into that argument with knew he was going to be at the store for the rest of the day. And again, it's not life or death here. So he's like, oh, I can't just leave work because I don't want to have an altercation with somebody. I got to stay here and finish my shift. But this person might come back and try some tr- start some trouble with me. Maybe, but I think the problem with that is I think he would have told Danny. Right. You know what I mean? When Danny comes back, he would have told him, hey, this dude came in here and threatened me, and there was nothing like that, you know? So the one thing that comes to my mind, and I hate to stereotype people, I'm heavily tattooed, you're heavily tattooed, Bob, Mm -hmm. but if Jeff Durbin's in there, he's got tattoos on his face. You know, we found this out. He's got tattoos on his face. Right. What if Jeff Durbin's in there walking around, he's scoping the place out, that's going to set somebody off, especially in the early 90s. Some guy, you know, kind of walking around being weird with tattoos on his face. You're going to feel a lot right. more. And they were like, I just don't know what the, I can't what the 
outlook on these particular tattoos was, but because they're they're prison tattoos, mm-hmm. they're they're little teardrop, two little teardrop tattoos. I think, and I and I want to I want to make sure I'm clear on that. The pictures I have of him are from a distance, and it's really hard. They're kind of blurry, but you can see two little things right here. On but his face. In, in that time period, that's not something that people just have, right? You know what I mean? That's that's a not only is it an indicator, it's you know you've there's a reason you have a tattoo on your face. You know, mm-hmm. you're, there's something different. This isn't this isn't now. The and, that, and that's what I'm trying to remember. Even when there's mumble rappers that have their face tattooed that are white kids that you've never heard of. You know, this it's a different right. time. You're talking about Post Malone. I'm talking about any of them. Oh, because I don't like Post they're, Malone. Everywhere. They're, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They're here in there's, small town yeah, Midwest yeah. Michigan. But you see a lot of people with face tattoos now. Right. It, it's not as you know. It's it's way more prevalent now than it was then. And, and I guess what I'm, I'm trying to remember back then. Like I guess I think I would have. Like if I if I saw somebody with like. Tattoos like that in the early 90s that I would be like, oh, that's prison tattoo. You'd be something. way more alarmed. Yeah. Yeah. So it could be, you know, if he was if he was hanging around. But yeah, yeah I just I just think that there was a threat that he couldn't put his finger on. You know what I mean? There, there's there's a person or a something and it has to be a person because of the story. He can only see so much. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially with remember the windows boarded up. Yeah. Like he can only see the little, you know, 10 square feet inside the store. How long was Danny gone? It's hard to say, you know, because he. It, even in his in his like ninety nine interview, you know, he he at one point says, "Yeah, I left." It was like I don't know seven thirty ish, and then the cops like, oh, or maybe ten to ten to eight, and then the cops like, "Oh, it was so it was like ten after eight. And he's like, "No, it was ten. It was ten till eight. Somewhere I think between seven thirty seven forty five ish is about time he left. So close, right? Well, then that makes you wonder: was there someone lingering when Danny was there, and they were waiting for the store to be empty? You know, imagine you see if you see somebody, and these obviously are just hypothetical scenarios we're throwing around here. So don't don't think this is the theory of the case. But imagine there's somebody outside watching or keeps coming in and out of the store, and they're hanging out, and they're there earlier when Danny's there, and Bill's just like, dude, don't leave. Like something's something's up here. Don't leave. And Danny leaves, and then the guy's still hanging out there, and then he, you know, again, it's not enough to want to call the police for but maybe to call your buddy but they do get back here like this dude's still hanging out but again it just you just wish that he'd given a little more information maybe to michelle about what was bothering him but that's i i think whatever it was was a threat that he couldn't put his finger on and that's also why i think maybe that whoever it was was somebody he didn't know with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. So on the whole timeline theory, I'm still not 100% certain that that first no-sale actually has anything to do with the crime. Even though I know they say there's almost no reason to hit the no-sale button, that they very rarely ever hit the no sale button mm-hmm. being that there's that time elapsed and it's starting to feel like there is no personal connection with whoever the killer is right 
that I almost wonder if if it was just a coincidence that he had to hit the no sale button earlier. I think it's related in one way or another. Maybe not so much gun in your face, opens a register, waits five minutes, hits a register again. Mm-hmm. But but maybe whatever the threat was, you know, like we originally thought with Martinez, whatever it was. You know, so it was related, but not directly. Okay. You know what I mean? It, 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 it just, it's too, I don't like coincidences. Mm-hmm. And it's just too much of a coincidence that 10 minutes before he hits a silent alarm and he's murdered, he hit a no sale. And it's the only time he hit it the, the whole day, you know, yeah. other, other than to do his, his, his drops and save. You know, it's like he just happens to hit one and then another one and then another one. Mm-hmm. All boom, boom, boom. It's too close in proximity. But, you know, I th- I thought about, to be honest with you, what I was kind of tossing around as a theory was what if the no sale was when he was on the phone to Michelle? So you got an 805 purchase. He puts the phone down. She hears him talking to somebody dealing with a customer mm-hmm. and he's just flustered. He's on the phone. He's, you know, maybe he the guy pays. He gives him his change, and the guy's like, uh, you gave me the wrong change. You owe me another dollar. Yeah. You know, and he, he just oh, hits, it. hits it and gives him his other dollar, something like that, mm-hmm. you know, which, again, is not directly related to the crime. But I'm say- what I'm saying is kind of still connected well, see, is because. I, I guess that's what I was saying is it, it's less actual part of the crime. Yeah. And it could be, you know, like you said, you could be flustered. You could have messed up. But I think that there is a coincidence of that he could have just messed up on like that being flustered. Right. And that that person that was there at that time might not necessarily be the killer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I, I, I actually don't think that it's a direct connection. I do not think that the drawer was open three times for the killer. Even the two times is strange, mm-hmm. but definitely three times. And, and then that six minute gap between them just seems really unlikely to me, but I think it's related in the fact that he was spooked, mm-hmm. which is again, is indicating that somebody was casing the joint setting. You know, it wasn't just some guy that just ran in, you know, parked his car, ran in there, stuck him up and shot him and left. Yeah. I think this, you know, they were casing the store, which then take us back to, you know, when I went through the other crimes with Durbin and Miller, you know, the, the one, the one guy with the fucking idiots, his friend is sitting or the person he knows that he was just at his house is sitting at the Clark station on the phone in a van and sees them like driving back and forth and back. You know, he says, you say he went down six point road. He turns around, he went across Monroe, he drove around back and forth then finally parked the cab kind of away. And then Miller walks up to the scene, you know, so there could have been, they clearly were casing the place they were looking to see where a good place to park is where a good where a good way to ingress and egress the the station to get away so there could have been a lot of that going on and it's enough that if you you know you work at a gas station long enough i would assume you know what a normal pattern of customers looks like also there's been all these other armed robberies going on including at that store and so you you look out and you see somebody that's lingering and they leave and come back and they're lingering and they leave and come back I could see how now you're starting to get nervous and it could lead to a mistake and maybe that first no-sale. Dude, I, I didn't even realize that that store had been hit before. Yeah. No, uh, Jeannie uh, Luna was, was hit up in uh, December. At the same store? I, I same it, store, yeah. Jesus, I thought it was a different store. No, no. well, there was another Clark's. There was two more. So you had, remember the guy we had on? I don't remember, Chuck, I think was his name. He was at a different Clark station across town and he got robbed. I remember. And then now. there was the Clark station that Miller and Durbin hit in the summer that they got caught for. But then this particular Clark, Bill's Clark station, got hit a few months before in December when Gina Luna was was working because she's the one who told us where the alarm button was and everything. This one's from Mary. 
Did Bill have other close friends other than Danny? If he was concerned enough for his safety, why wouldn't he have called someone else to come to the station if Danny wasn't available? For what it sounds like, Bill didn't really have... He, he kind of left his high school friends behind after high school and was hanging out mostly with Danny. And so I think he was just the close... And, and again, what we were talking about earlier, if there was this kind of perceived threat that you can't put your finger on, how many people are you comfortable enough with to tell them you're scared? Well, that's exactly my thought, is you might have several friends, but you're going to have like one close friend that you are going to confide in a little more that, yeah, you're scared. I'm not going to tell my friends I'm scared, but I might call a certain person and be like, hey, man, this is this is freaking me out. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's probably part of it. And we do know that he had you know, the, one of the car thieves was a very good friend of, of Bill Little's, you know, too. He found out about it l- later that night, I think. So he did have some other friends, but yeah, I think Danny was just his the friend, the friend you call with something serious. All right, John says, why wasn't the testimony of Karen Miller saying that her spouse committed the murder given more weight? Oh, it's a good question, but it, it sounds like, not sounds like, reads like when you read through those reports, you can follow Crow's train of thought and it ends with Jeff Miller is five foot six, 125 pounds and doesn't have a scar on his chin. So, I mean, it, it's as simple as that. It, the, the bigger mistake was once Katz gets involved years later, and evidently throws out Gutierrez and Martinez's witness identifications, their, their descriptions, and decides those don't matter, and doesn't circle back to the most promising, strongest lead that we had to begin with. He goes right for Jamie Snow, but you know, and I've said this before: if when they decided, okay, forget the descriptions, let's look at what we have, Jeff Miller was the guy that they should have been looking at. Not saying he did it, but he was the guy they should have been looking at based on the leads they had. Landon says, has anyone tried to reach out to Jeff Miller's wife to get some amplifying information? Also, has anyone tried to track her down to get an interview? Yeah, uh, working on it. I have not made contact with her, but I'm trying to do that right now through some some people that, that know her personally. The situation is a little complicated. I'll get into it later. But yeah, I am hoping to get in touch with her and talk to her very soon. Also, Mike, before you ask the next question, I do want to. I, I promised last week that I would come back to this. the The flyers. It was Leslie. Now I'm going to get her last name wrong. Leslie Pires, I think, is the listener who is the one who funded and paid paid for and and organized all of the the flyers to be printed. She sent. She prepaid for printed flyers for people. She bought ads in newspapers to put the the ten thousand dollar reward posters up. So I just did want to say, and I probably, I'm sorry, Leslie, if I just butchered your last name, trying to picture it in my head from Facebook, but that's who handled all that stuff. And that that was freaking awesome. Just took that upon herself to do all that and, and spent a lot of money on it. And it's very much appreciated. Definitely. Yeah. And she's been really active on the fan page too. Yeah, very much so. Angela says, how does Jamie know that it was Durbin who talked to him in jail? Also, does Jamie remember seeing tattoos on Durbin's face? Jamie does not remember the tattoos. When I asked him about it, he was he's like, I, I don't think so. Which at the time was kind of a red flag for me because when I had talked to our tipster, he just said he had face tattoos. I was picturing Mike Tyson face tattoos. And then after I finally saw pictures of Durbin, I was like, oh, I see why. They're just two tiny little tattoos up by his eyes. I could see how, the, and, and he's in prison. How many people have them in prison? So it wouldn't have, wouldn't have stood out. Uh, but he knows it was Jeff Durbin because he introduced himself. Right. Yeah, he told him he was Jeff Durbin, you know, when he asked him who he was. So that that's how he knew who it was. All right, Robin wants to know, did Bill know the Jeffs? 
Uh, as far as we know, no. I've not seen. I've not come across any kind of connection between Bill Little and Jeff Miller or Jeff Durbin. All right, Bob. Before we close out, do you want to update everybody on what our plans are moving forward? Yeah. So uh, we have a little. Actually, don't have any more information. I've had to. Do, I've actually had to do some detective work and sleuthing of my own to figure out when my TV show is going to be on the air. So, so far, everybody keeps asking, when is the TV series coming on and when are we returning to West Memphis 3? First of all, I'll apologize and say that I originally told you guys we were going to do season six and then go back to season five. Not my fault because I thought that process would be much faster, but you know that, that obviously drug on and we did all the filming last year. It was about this time last year that we started shooting the TV show. Uh, throughout the summer, we edited it, and then it was the the finished copy was delivered to Oxygen in September, I think. So we've all been thinking any time now it's going to be aired, but we have we've not gotten any information from Oxygen when they're going to air it. All we know from them is that they they very strategically place shows. You know, when they they obviously don't want to have two big shows that are competing with each other. Our show, they've told us they really really like it. They think it's really awesome, and they want to do. You know, really make an event out of it with promos and build up that that's going to be the big thing that's on when it is aired. But I have, I watch Oxygen a lot and I have seen a lot of promos for their upcoming series all the way out to like April and May of this year. And so my deductive reasoning has told me that if they're promoing stuff out through the spring and they haven't promoted our show yet that it's probably not coming until after the spring. I'm being as straight up with you guys as I can be. I'm not hiding anything. I have no idea when they're going to air it. I know that it's going to be aired. I know they like it. I know it's coming sometime soon, but it doesn't look like it's going to be anytime real soon, which then puts us into a kind of a scheduling pickle, uh, which we were hoping to kind of bring season seven to a conclusion right as the TV show aired. So we could then swing back into season five. As it stands now, we I, I definitely tell you, I don't know how much longer season seven is going to go. I, I'll tell you, we have more work to do. I think we're on a hot trail. There's new witnesses we need to talk to, and there's a lot of work we have left to do. This is my favorite part of any case when we're really getting into the new investigation. But I can also tell you that's not going to be four more months or five more months of this. So. What we're doing now is trying to decide what our season eight case is going to be. Uh, we're not just going to stop and wait for the TV series. We're just going to keep on going until it comes until it happens. So we will very likely in the next. I don't, I don't want to give a time because I thought we were close to wrapping up in December, but then we found new information. But I would say probably in the next month or two, you know, probably four to eight more episodes, we'll be wrapping up season seven. Uh, whenever you know, whenever we have exhausted leads and we build our, you know, t- take our case file and package and turn it over to the attorneys, and then we're going to move on to season eight. We are looking at a series of cases. We just you know, every Wednesdays, me, Mike, and Zach spend every all morning going through all of our inmate mail, trying to determine, you know, pick our next case, going through our online uh, form. We've got a few contenders. Uh, and the Innocence Project of Texas, who you guys all know and love from seasons two, three, and four, they have a case that they really want us to take on. And as of right now, I know we, you know, a lot of you guys want a little more variety and, and move around a little bit. I certainly have had enough of Texas for my entire life. But 
this particular case is really, really interesting and very fascinating. And uh, I think it's right up our alley where what we've shown we can do, the Truth and Justice Army can do here uh, in Season 7. I think taking that skill set back down there into this particular case, we may actually be able to crack it, solve the case, get some justice for both the victim and the wrongfully convicted. So right now, that seems to be our front runner. We've got a couple other cases. We're looking at one from Alaska. Uh, we're looking at a few others. So we, we have not made a determination yet, but we are just, just so you guys know where we're at. We are actively in the, that's, we may, I may seem a little scatterbrained lately. It's cause I'm really juggling right now, really focusing in on Bill Little's murder investigation while at the same time screening and, and pre-investigating other cases as well. But so we'll update you guys when we get a little closer and we know what's going on, but just want to let you know. If you're waiting, somebody had uh, had posted the other day that the TV show title popped up on Oxygen the other day when they were watching it. It was kind of a flash screen where they were saying, you know, here's upcoming Oxygen originals. And one of them was the title they went with is The Forgotten West Memphis Three, which I like because that was our podcast title um, for that season. And so we thought maybe it was coming any time now, but then all the promos started coming out and we weren't one of them. So with all that being said. Uh, sorry for the delay on season five, but we've got a job to do. We've got people that need our help, and we're going to keep on keeping on and trying to keep helping other people who have been wrongfully convicted and bring justice to both victims and the incarcerated moving forward. And that is going to do it for this week's Friday follow-up. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Zach. And thank you, listeners. And make sure you tune in on Sunday for episode 24. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. 
And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Zach. Thank you, guys. Thanks, man. <laughs> what do you want me to say? <laughs> I don't want you to, either want you to say anything. I just want you to let me finish. Well, my, did you oh, did it. Just oh, stop. Oh, okay. yeah, right. No, because he said it right in the middle of me saying it. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Zach. And thank you, listeners. And make sure you tune in on Sunday for episode 24.